This is the Vincast, Australia's number one wine podcast, hosted by myself, James Gersbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you would know that every episode I ask you to uh, leave a rating and a review on the iTunes page for the podcast because uh, it's great feedback for me. I can uh, I can find out who you might want to have on the show, that you might want to listen to their story. But also it's really fantastic for exposing more people to the podcast who might be interested in wine, might not realize that there is a wine podcast. So uh, please do go to the iTunes page for the Vincast hit that five star rating and uh, and leave me a short review it should only take you about five or ten minutes at most please you'd, you'd be doing me a massive favor and also all the people who have been on the podcast already uh, it's great for them to hear that you are enjoying the show so thanks very much and i hope you enjoy this week's episode Episode 94 of the Vincast, I chat with Lance Regwell, the vintner behind Cult New Zealand Winery, Cambridge Road in Martinborough. there Vincasters and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino and um, I hope you enjoyed last week's uh, slightly late episode of the podcast with Ben Haynes. It was great to finally sit down with him and I actually look forward to catching up with him when I visit Mount Langyjiran in July uh, and I'll be tasting a range of wines so um, I'll be sure to share my tasting notes when I do that. Um, I had just got back from my weekend away in Tasmania and it was great to, to catch up with a number of uh, friends and colleagues and meet some new ones as well. Uh, so I look forward to sharing my experiences there. But uh, for this week, I actually sat down with uh, Lance Regwell from Cambridge Road Wines in Martinborough, New Zealand. Lance was here uh, with his uh, importer, Vinus. Uh, and I actually got the opportunity to also attend a wonderful wine dinner at uh, at Host Brunswick uh, that evening. So I really enjoyed my chat with uh, with Lance talking about uh, organic biodynamic uh, and you know wines that are, as he says, alive. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in touch with Lance and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Lance, uh, thank you very much for making some time whilst you're here in Melbourne and Australia, I guess, to uh, to be on the podcast. And uh, I'd like to officially welcome you as, I think, my first New Zealand winemaker on, on the Vincast. So, uh, welcome. Thanks, mate. It's good to be here. Uh, I start every episode of the podcast by asking my guest if they can remember um, the, the time that they interacted with wine that had a quite a, a slightly more profound influence on them. Um, you know, if there was such an event or if it was more an osmosis, you know, gradual kind of seeping into the, the bones that made you want to follow a career in wine. Yeah, I guess the, um, I guess the foundation of where, um, the desire or the seed to grow wine came from, um, actually goes back to probably memories of my grandmother's garden and her kitchen and, uh, 
her tomatoes and uh, her basil and her pesto and um, her love of Italian lifestyle. Um, growing, she was a farmer and I grew up there, but there's no, no roots to the vineyards um, back home in New Zealand where we came from. But um, just that desire to grow good, delicious produce and share it with people with love and passion yeah. uh, led me down the path towards wine. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've been rolling with it ever since, I guess. Whereabouts did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up on the sort of volcanic country fringe of Auckland city. Right. Um, rich basaltic earth, um, more, more renowned for growing vegetables than, um, than grapevines. Yeah. You'll find a few olive groves there nowadays. Um, but, uh, a challenging climate, a lot more rain and humidity than where I'm currently based down at the lower end of that island. Is, it, um, is there any possibility for viticulture in that area? Oh, for sure, if you're passionate and um, willing to work hard, like we, most of us do. Um, as you head a little bit east, you find some rain shadow, you're into clay earth, um, maritime influence, um, Cabernet Franc, Merlot country. Right, okay. Chardonnay, the ever-adaptable grape seems to work around there. And Is there quite a bit of volcanic soil throughout New Zealand? North Island based is yeah. where the volcanic activity is. Because um, as soon as I heard volcanic, I thought, ooh, Norella Muscalese. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure um, <laughs> about, you know, heat units and that sort of thing yeah. for, um, for, for emulation of uh, real, <laughs> real Italy. But the first guy I ever worked for was an Italian guy. Right. And uh, certainly gave me some exposure to things like Barbetta. Um, uh, yeah, Corvina Nebbiolo. Uh, Playing around with uh, Amarone styles and dried grape method. Okay, so there are some Italian grapes growing in New Zealand. Oh, it's uh, it's sadly a really rare occasion. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's only one or two producers that are committed to that. Okay, um, that path, uh, and uh, I'm hoping to become one of them as time progresses. We'll I'd find some space to put some um, a little bit more. Listeners of the podcast would know that, you know, I have a real love affair with Italian wine and Italian grape varieties, you know, because partly because my day job is selling Italian wine. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how Italian grape varieties can translate Australian terroir. And I'd be really fascinated to sort of see, you know, how, because I think possibly, um, people's perception of Italian or Italy, um, and subsequently Italian varieties is that, you know, oh, they come from a warm climate, but, most of the time they don't. And I would think that you no, know, there'd be a lot of you know Italian varieties, you know northern Italian varieties, which probably would be ideal for you know New Zealand climate. Yeah, I think you're not you're not wrong at all. Yeah. Um, certainly, I feel more Italian when I sort of make my wines than sort of classically French. I suppose <laughs> one good. would hope I felt like a that's Kiwi good to hear through and through though. But your grandmother was Italian? Uh no, surprisingly, um, no, she wasn't. We're like fifth generation Kiwis of sort oh, okay. of Irish English stock. Um, but she made pesto. Yeah, I know. She's a good woman, <laughs> and she's never travelled to Italy. Um, wow. But yeah, surprising where where those little gems of um, inspiration come from. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, certainly um, the future lies with more uh, other European varieties. Yeah. As we, um, you know, continue to roll forward and evolve as a nation of wine producers. So when did you kind of get interested in wine? Uh, kinda, around eighteen twenty. Mm -hmm. was at university and um, what were you studying? Started with business and commerce and okay. marketing and PR and stuff like that. And Fun stuff. Not really, not really <laughs> at all. 
halfway through that degree, picked up some papers in um, viticulture science and wine science and uh, never looked back, really. So was the interest, like, just drinking it or did you kind of no, find I didn't, stuff? No, I didn't really have a huge interest in wine at the time. It did stem all from a love of food and, you know, the art of sharing at the table. Right. Um, you know, just celebration of the harvest and produce in general. Yeah, I like beer. Yeah, yeah. I like booze. Yeah. I like booze of all kinds. Yeah, but yeah. Um, wine, you know, ties together so much of, um, well, what I love of as, 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 as a human mm-hmm. um, and sort of the skill basis I had from um, the desire to grow things, mm-hmm. uh, to work the earth organically. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and as I sort of alluded to earlier, to to just grow, share great produce with people, preserve it simply, mm. um, share it honestly um, with good times and good people. Um, so wine fitted all of those formulas and allowed me to overlay the sort of artistic, creative side of adorning things beautifully and sharing, you know, sharing a vision, creating a brand, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the challenges that go with that and... Um, Certainly, the layers of complexity that underlie running your own business and that sort of thing, which is the least favourable part of it, but um, but, do our best but also to, necessary. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So, so you studied uh, a bit of viticulture and winemaking. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty casually trained. Um, so it was just correspondence papers. Um, you know, I just added them to my curriculum at the time. And um, is there is there a particular place to study viticulture and winemaking, or can you do it in a number of places? You know, I, I, I'm a firm believer that the best way to study viticulture is on the land and um, yeah. from, you know, great producers and mentors and as much as, you know, just picking up knowledge from wherever we can. Learn by doing? Uh, you know, it's great to have some fundamental skill base. The thing was when we were studying, trying to learn uh, organic uh, agricultural techniques mm. uh, that applied specifically to viticulture, was the knowledge was like hen's teeth. It was really, really hard to to find with the exception of a few journal articles I could find written by um, or James Milton. Our, he's sort of like our organic godfather. Mm. Um, so early Demeter certified back in the 80s. Um, Gisborne, East Coast New Zealand, working in really humid and challenging viticultural conditions, delivering consistently kick-ass wines um, and continues to do so to this day. Um, and really the, the threads of knowledge came through from him and then you had to look to a more global example and understand the art of biodynamics. And there's a great college in Hawke's Bay called Taruna College that does our national qualifications in, um, in biodynamic agriculture. Mm. When I went through the program back in '03, it was um, a broad agricultural study, nine, okay. mu- nine months of committed sort of learning from great organic farmers. Right. Short modules, really interesting stuff. Um, sectors on water, you know, the the, uh, the the physics of water movement, time, um, how um, how to farm forests and tree crops, and you know, animals. I mean, they're all so interrelated, and it all does start with the soil. But it, we had a good time. Is that is that pretty common as far as like when you when you're looking at organic and and biodynamic agriculture mm-hmm. that you are it's it's important to understand how all kind of crops and plants might work in that kind of ecosystem whereas in you know more commercial um farming 
kind of understanding, you think of it as one crop. So it's like, well, I'm going to learn how to grow wheat or I'm going to learn how to grow grapes. And, and, and that sort of really doesn't help as far as like particularly biodiversity. Yeah, I think you said it right there for sure. Like monoculture is um, the vacuum in which disease exists. Yeah. So, so even studying, you know, biodynamic or organic viticulture, you're taught to understand, well, you know, here's how this affects all different kinds of plants. Yeah, I think you can um, adapt all of that knowledge. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a, a simple simple farming practice, really, and it is all about having a living ecosystem. Yeah. Know? Diversity is key. Um, holistic farm management is great as much as you can pursue it. We're, um, we're constrained currently to just a little six-acre parcel of land surrounded by other vineyards. One of my neighbours on the eastern side's Atarangi Vineyard, um, who are pretty renowned for what they do, and Clive, the founder there, he's, um, he's big into his biodiversity, so he's got quite a lot of native, um, native pathways through the blocks, you know, for, for insects and bird life, etc. And they've recently fully converted over to the organic management programs too, which is great to have on my doorstep. But with six acres, I mean, I don't have that much space for livestock. I no. don't have that much place for forestry. Mm. But uh, we're doing our best to bring it into play. We sort of have some chickens and some ducks and um, a little bit of tree planting and things mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, managing your undivine story, uh, the way that you look after your soil is key. Um, thriving biology directed at a positive sort of outcome yeah. is, um, is all we can do. And I uh, hope to... Um, harness the taste of the earth and the vines, which mm. is, of course, every decent wine grower's objective, did, I think. Did your interest in, in sustainable um, practices um, that come fairly early on? How did you kind of get interested in that aspect of, of um, wine? Sustainable practices? Yeah, like say? organic biodynamic. Kind of thing. Um, again... Well, I, when I first graduated, I, I went and did some work with a couple of vineyards in the challenging environment of Auckland and got um, got inducted into the program of traditional wine growing at the time, at that point in time. Um, and, you know, I could see that working with carcinogenic products is not something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. um, especially knowing the very true fact that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and that I would be raising a family on the land mm-hmm. and that children are children and they should be able to run through your vineyard and rub their faces and, and the, you know, and the, and the grapes and eat them and just, you know, be kids and create a living, thriving, healthy environment. I'm not in this. I mean, wine to me is part of a, a balanced lifestyle and part of a, you know, a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be something that um, harms us. It should be something that we... Um, embrace and, mm. and endure and, and enriches us. Is it so, the same situation in New Zealand where like a lot of social problems are unfairly blamed on alcohol and, and, and wine kind of gets lumped in? And, um, that's certainly a, a problem in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I just came through from Sydney. It's a shame what's happening over there in terms yeah. of the ability to enjoy, um, uh, you know, adult life. Um it's uh, slow. I think we're a few steps further behind, um, and I think wine still, thankfully, um, is not necessarily part of that collective um, understanding mm. or you know 
feeling. Mm. Um, I mean, it represents such an important part of the New Zealand economy, um, wine production and wine tourism. Yeah, it does. It does. And, uh, yeah, we don't have... um, no, we, we wine's not dirt cheap in New Zealand as well, so it's still sort of um, chosen as a a slightly more educated choice. Cultural, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know, but um, can you tell me a little bit about um, your your early part career path in in the wine industry? Uh sure. Yeah. In a nutshell, um, yeah, I started on the volcanic clays of South Auckland, um, east southeast Auckland, overlooking sort of the island of Waiheke and out the Coromandel Peninsula. So turf in which I grew up, um, beautiful exposure to the culinary world there and into making limoncello and olives production and, you know, just the greater lifestyle. Mm. Um channeled through viticultural management, um, vineyard managing did a little bit of sales repping work as well. Okay. Not really deeply into winemaking at this point other than being a seller at. Um, and then uh, then migrated a bit further south after a few years there to go and explore perhaps the more um, established commercial areas of New Zealand wine production mm-hmm. down the east coast through the South Island, etc. cetera. Uh, passing through, connected with James Milton, um, who recommended the Taruna College course in the Bay, Hawke's Bay. So that's good territory. Lived on the coast there for a while, uh, around a place called Clearview Estate, um, down the South Island, doing a lot of turf kicking. Viticulture is really my forte. Mm-hmm. So dusty roads, looking for unexplored sites and mm. viticultural potential. That's what kind of drives me. Um, is there still a lot of that in New Zealand? Untapped potential. Yeah. Yeah, there's some beautiful geology and uh, overlaid with great climatic bands. But, you know, it's an expensive game planning these vineyards. Sure. And it's a time timely game too. Yeah. And it's a bloody committed game. It's not the kind of thing you sort of step into for a few years and, and move on from, you know. No. It's a lifetime choice yeah. to establish a block, especially in an area that's undiscovered, under unestablished. You know, it's going to take a lifetime to generate a... Um, following and understanding when you're pioneering any site like that mm-hmm. and sometimes it's a fucking lonely game mm. as well you know you need that family that's willing to live in the middle of nowhere on this bloody great hillside that you know sits on limestone or or slate or whatever it might be you hope that they can have some appreciation that you yeah. do for, for yeah how important and, you know, places. And, and is happy well you know i mean I, there's places i've found that i've chosen that I, I know the commitment level is more than I can fathom at this point um, with family commitments and things like that. So, Slightly more isolated spots? Uh, yeah, there's certainly some um, amazingly beautiful pieces of um, terroir that uh, are yet to be really fully explored. Um, where, you're, where you are in sort of that Martinborough-Hawke's Bay area, is that reasonably populated? No, not really. A, no. Few, a few little clusters around the core. I mean, Hawke's Bay is a bigger example. We don't do a lot of work there. I lived there for a little while. Yeah. I'm considering working with some fruit from that territory. Okay. You know, it's, it's, there's a, between that, that land, there's a beautiful area that speaks of Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc and some great things that no one's really doing much with at this point. Mm. Um, where we are in the Martinborough, it's, it's a tiny little, village really and um there's quite a lot of beautiful diversity as you explore the valley further Mm. but again it's a capital intensive game and um something that you know you have to be 
pretty patient to um, slowly evolve the business. I is, think is Martin Martinborough one of the more expensive places to to be, you know, establishing a venue? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. On a on a per acre basis, if you want to be on the heart of the terrace, then land prices aren't cheap. They are generally established sites. Um, on the fringes, it's more affordable, and the viticultural potential on the fringes is it's great if you know where to look. Mm. Um, but the nice thing about Martinborough is the scale of agriculture is really petite. It's quite intimate, so lots of blocks of my scale, six to 10 acres you know there's even two and a half acre parcels and things like that mm-hmm. so while the per acre price is not cheap for you know for half a mil you can get yourself a, a producing vineyard and you can start a label or something mm. um well you know if you're lucky you can do it for half that price depending on the scale at which you want to roll mm-hmm. so it's not hideously expensive either we're not buying you know 100 acre parcels of producing Marlborough vineyards or <laughs> something ridiculous like that. So um, it's nice. So that's a lot of people not, choose so to go good. there and follow their passion. Yeah. And nowadays we've got more and more younger, younger, passionate people coming in. So like second or third generation picking up established old blocks, which are heading to the market um, as, you know, 30 year old parcels and things, yeah. which is great, great opportunity for fun and interesting things to evolve. And close to Wellington, we see a whole bunch of, um, cool people coming up and get to share our wines with them on a regular basis, which Mm. is a nice part of the business. James Halliday is undoubtedly Australia's foremost authority on Australian wine. Uh, He established Wine Companion as an annual guide to the wines of Australia, uh, giving tasting notes and and ratings of Australian wines. Uh, And that evolved into a a, a regular magazine, a wine magazine called Wine Companion, uh, which also has an online presence. And... um, Halliday is actually uh, a fantastic way to find out what's happening in the world of wine. But the online element is a great resource if you'd like to just find out basic details about uh, about a winery uh, and what the best wineries of a particular region might be. If you're thinking about visiting, which I highly recommend you do, get out to the wine regions, visit some wineries. So um, if you are a listener of the podcast, Wine Companion and Halliday have offered a fantastic offer. Uh, simply enter the code intrepid 30 one word when you purchase any subscription package and they will give you an amazing 30 percent discount what an amazing saving thank you very much wine companion and mr halliday for your support of this podcast thank you guys for listening and please do check out winecompanion.com.au in those years when you were as you say sort of kicking dirt and cellar ratting and stuff like that did you already have uh, you know the the intention of establishing establishing something for yourself. Uh, yeah, right from day one, I think. Um, a very clear vision that I always wanted to kick off my own label, and that would be small and manageable, mm-hmm. and that I'd own it, hopefully control it. You know what I mean? It wouldn't own me, um, and uh, that we would do great things that we sort of add value to, and that we're passionate about, and that we love. Mm. Uh, so with that in mind, I only ever really worked for, and you know, smaller family-owned firms. Without it, were passionate about mm. what they did, and the caliber of what they did was excellent. Uh, and that's the level of care that we try to that I've sort of tried to 
take to the entire formula of the way we do things. Mm. So yeah, I, I bashed around different parts of the industry. I spent a little bit of time in London at some point distributing some wines. You know, wanted to get a feel for all facets of the industry. Sure. So that when you kick your own baby off, that you sort of you've got a decent level of understanding. Turns out you can never have enough knowledge, but you know we continue to learn as we go along. Yeah. And get better at what we do every year. Yeah. And still make occasional mistakes, but you know, refine the formula over time, I suppose. But it's mainly about friendships. Sure. You know? It's about channels and and people you know and you know the good times you have. How have you seen um, the New Zealand wine industry kind of evolve, particularly over like the last fifteen, you know, ten or fifteen years? Um, you know, of course, there was huge investment in Marlborough when you know Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc just sort of took over the world. Did did other parts of New Zealand experience the same kind of you know heavy investment? Uh, you know, not to an extreme level, I don't think. Um, yeah, Marlborough's a battleship of a, a beast of a thing, and it just keeps on rolling. Um, Central Otago's experienced a huge amount of you know investment and growth of the no, last when, twenty years. When but they're saying that you know some some of the best Pinot Noir outside of Burgundy, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. Yeah, well, you know the the blessed with gorgeous gorgeous landscape. Mm. You know who who doesn't want a little um, nest egg down in somewhere in the safe southern hemisphere? You know, so a lot of offshore capital came in there. When you say safe, do you mean like free of earthquakes? No, I mean like you know a lot of it was American capital and stuff, and yeah, okay. I can't quote on the reasons why people choose to invest in you know um, hidden away little places. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, it's tucked up in the mountains there. It's mm. got beautiful water resources, great mm. snow, great landscapes, great tourism, great economy, um, and it continues to flourish and grow. Mm. I could be pretty happy down there, I suppose, but um. To be honest, once you own your own vineyard, well, I don't travel like I used to. You know, it's been a decade since I visited Central Otago. At least I really want to get back down there because it's a pretty gifted climate, with the exception of maybe it's too dry and mm. the soils are too lean, mm. um, and that irrigation becomes a big part of your formula. Luckily, they have huge water resources, but um, and the best farmers, of course, farming biologically, are building organic matter into the soils over time and improving the land on which they farm. Mm. And that's what I really want to go and see the differences between when I first visited there 15, 20 years ago and and now with the passionate following of, you know, really biological farmers down there, mm. just how thriving their lands really are now. And mm. I admire you know, a good handful of the producers down there and the calibre of what they offer for sure. Mm. But um, would would you say that like where the, the 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 best or the most exciting part of New Zealand wine is is in those smaller established um, farmers essentially who are growing the grapes and making their own wine? Um, you know, like they're they're the, they're sort of the ones who have established the name of New Zealand wine, particularly in terms of premium wine. You know the, that like for example in in the US. Which probably would be New Zealand's one, you know, one of the most important markets. Well, for wine in general, I guess. But New Zealand has a perception of they make premium, cool climate wines, and Australia doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, do you think that, how, that that's that's an important kind of core about what New Zealand wine is? is these small, you know, really devoted producers. I think in any country, that's where the you know the gems lie. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, 
yeah, I mean, those are the wines I personally like to enjoy. Um, you know, it's nice to support people like that too. People that have the uh, opportunity to make personal wines. And that's that's the other thing about farming on the scale that I do. Yeah. And when you embed so much of your own energy into everything from pruning your vines to, you know, caressing them through the growing season, um, becoming, you know, just interwoven with, with, with the nature of your land, you know, so your instincts take over. Um, training doesn't matter at that point. It's how well you're connected and with the seasons and how well you observe things and when you can see stress and things and you can sort of step in and help, help things out. Mm -hmm. Um, and when, you know, it's nice to know that this, these, these little rows of vines over here are always first to bud burst in the spring. Therefore they're also the first to flower. Therefore when it comes time to harvest, I know they're probably going to be my, my early crop and, but I quite like the sector over here because it's just, um, you know, it's got a little bit more vibrant acid in it. And, and in fact, we're going to pick both of those together and co-ferment them because mm. we want that freshness. But, you know, we don't want overripeness at this mm -hmm. end. And just by working the land on a small scale, you have that level of connection with your site. So when it comes to your winemaking decisions and harvesting times and all of those kind of things, um, it becomes simple. I don't bother doing much in the way of field testing or anything anymore you know we just when you feel you know when it's right mm -mm. a bit of taste a bit of look you know and um just go with it yeah so um so you eventually you decided to to start your own thing well what were the um the, the important decisions that you made about um starting up cambridge road yeah i had no intention of um setting up in Martinborough because I thought it'd be priced out of my league. But due to the nature of the scale of things and fortuitous timing and just how things sometimes fall into place in life, um, there was an opportunity to get invested there. It wasn't the most beautiful vineyard in the world. It's not the most compelling if you study what, what is great, viticultural potential globally, you know, the Grand Cru sites, etc. Uh, I would never describe my vineyard as something of that comparable quality but it does have certain charms mm -hmm. and um and it and it does fit kind of nicely into into all i'm trying to do is just make a living raise a family and um and enough boxes were ticked in this example that i'm, I'm we're, we're close to achieving that goal mm. um so how, how did we get there? I don't know. I could have been anywhere. I'd be very, very happy to be in some back block up in Moikari hanging out next to um, the Pyramid Valley crew and stuff. The, the geology there is exceptional. The wine styles are great. There's further areas south, not central Otago, but sort of north Otago. The Waitaki Valley is worthy of mention. The viticultural potential there is awesome. The lifestyle potential is awesome. It's isolated though. You know, you've got to be passionate. <laughs> Um, and to say that some of the turf closer to my hometown is, um, it would be, would be nice too, you know, close to home, close to beaches you love. It's all about the bigger life. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we we're lucky enough. What I uh, just completed my 10th vintage with Cambridge Road with my own label. Yep. Um, haven't lived there the whole time, you know, need to have a real job to, um, pay the bills in the early years until we had a bit of wine to actually get serious about trying to sell. Um, and we started off making pretty serious reds. We planted to Pinot Noir and Syrah. Um, the vineyard goes back to the mid-80s. 
Um, so fairly simple philosophy. It was just older vines in a New Zealand context of the world. Yeah, of course. Um, farm them cleanly, simply, make the wine as honestly, classically as possible, um, and uh, deliver great wines. There are a couple of years to market in terms of the build phase. Mm. You know, a, good, a good year in um, barrel, and I usually do a year in bottle before release on the premium lines. As time's evolved and gone on, we've continued to pursue um, lower, lower, lower use of sulfites and intervention along those lines. We've always had the biological farming. We've always been an unfined, unfiltered kind of fan. And um, now we're dropping out the use of uh, new oak influence and we're working towards things like bigger bigger format, um, older wood, uh, just receiving another Sedgman egg this week, um, the ceramic work and the mm. ovum formats are, are kind of nice and um, something that excites me in terms of the kind of um, – I'm really interested in trying to preserve the um, the life energy of our produce and to uh, deliver that in bottle, you know, the bioelectric energy that potentially we can grow mm. as – sensitive farmers you know that all living things have and um with with my intention is to try to make produce that's um that's hypercharged basically that's just really buzzing with life mm-hmm. and um and as as a winemaker to as to to preserve that as honestly as simply as possible but with the most sensitive you know reflection of getting that into bottle Without losing some too much of that charge on route, mm. those are the sort of the hidden benefits of, um, to me anyway. That's the way I view biological biodynamic farming is that ability to um, to try and grow produce with that kind of um, that chi, that kind of inner, inner inner energy for sure. When you purchased the um, the vineyard, did you have to do? Um, do many things to kind of bring the vineyard more in line with with your vision about what you wanted it to be. It's uh, certainly kept me busy. Um, I was lucky in that the vineyard had a long history of organic husbandry, so all we had to do was hit go on that. It was looking a bit tired. It needed some fresh energy. It was a twenty year old when I picked it up. Mm. Um, so we put in, we you know, we ploughed the earth and we got biodynamic preps on the earth to inoculate the soil, and we we um, put new cover crops and more leguminous cover crops, some oats and things to build, just to enliven the soil. You know, thatched mm-hmm. old grass, just grass down under the vines. The canopies were a little bit yellow and, excuse me, a little bit tired. So we came in, freshened things up, and it was like flicking a switch on. Within a year, the the vineyard was thriving and. Um, you know, just vigorous and alive again, beautiful mm. deep greens and really good. And then looking at the block from a bigger perspective, um, there's uh, looking at the Pinot Noir and Syrah we had um, as a farmer, as a winemaker, the intention was to slow the metabolism on the Pinot Noir to allow it to calmly bring itself to fruition mm. over a longer period of time. But with the Syrah, we've got taken steps in the other direction to advance its uh, level of ripeness because of the climatic profile at which we exist. So historically, the, you'd harvest them a month apart. Um, so, you know, simple things, physical things, like um, 
saving the water shoots off the bottom of the Sarah. Ours were all trained up at sort of waist-high fruiting heights like a lot of modern New Zealand vineyards are mm. uh, in terms of fruiting heights, mm. um, so easily functional, et cetera, whatever, easy to farm. So we dropped them right down, um, chopped them off at the knees eventually over time, over years and years of saving water shoots and then spurring them and then laying new wood and then chopping the heads and... Um, now we've got nice low fruiting wires on the Syrah and we work agonisingly to, um, to you know, work the earth underneath those so that we get that exposed earth mm-hmm. and, you know, in an organic program that that involves finishing by hand if you have to. Uh, luckily I've only got like an acre and a half of the stuff. We don't usually get through all acre and a half by hand with all the other things we have to do in the, in the working year. Mm. But we get as much done as we can and the intention there is to, you know, harness that earth, heat, etc. Mm. but everyone knows the story of that. Mm. Um, Pinot, we've taken it the other way. We've lifted fruiting heights higher. I want it right up there in the cooler air, further away from the earth, more, more blowing long grasses and things like that. And I'm really happy with, the, you know, and subtle adjustments, really looking at over the 10 years at getting our sugars at harvest down, so shorter trimming heights on canopies. Mm. Um, as We haven't really fertilised the site for five years or so with the intention of making these girls... The old girls work hard to, you know, interpret the soil. I want, I want my wine to truly taste of the, you know, the minerals underfoot mm. um, that are native to the site, and not not following some bell curve of some, you know, laboratory that tells you you need a bit more phosphorus in the soil or whatever that might be. We do um, the main input we bring in is the kelp inputs from the local coast, mm-hmm. uh, which finds its way into all our compost, compost teas, things like that. Um, you know, liquid extracts and stuff, which go into every spray that we'll throw in the vineyard. Mm. Um, so just nice, gentle kelp, kelp-based resources. Sort of that's the gentle foliar feeds that we bring into play, and tiny bits of compost get spread around from our mark waste, which we layer with a little okay. bit of um, bits and pieces. You know, a bit of straw, seaweed. But, but the vineyard being what thirty years old now, and you having established a relationship with it you know, over the last ten years, must be pretty exciting and rewarding to to you know be getting it into a spot where you're really comfortable with it and and producing wines and i, I think um it's probably i'm excited myself to be uh, this evening uh joining uh j- joining you guys for dinner uh, and hopefully getting a chance to taste all the wines because um because it sounds really really exciting you know um I'm I'm really excited about some of the wines that I've been seeing from New Zealand, like that have, that have been coming to the Australian market. I think it's really exciting to see that the discussion is changing a lot. People in Australia, I think, are um, really changing their perception about what New Zealand wine is. It's not just oh, Melbourne Sauvignon Blanc. Um, you know, there's a lot of other great regions outside of Marlborough and even within Marlborough. There's some really uh, exciting kind of sites and and other varieties apart from Sauvignon Blanc. So, um, you know, I know that you've probably, you were in Sydney, I'm sure you probably got the opportunity to chat with lots of people and they're probably excited to see the wines as well. Yeah, we've been having a great time. And, um, you know, it's it's fun to be making some of these, um, well, we've sort of had our classical roots, mm. well, our attempts to emulate classicism and then now, we're starting to play around with um, far more experimental works. Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, one of my favourite wines is Dovetail, which is um, is a field blend. It's based on home vineyard and it's blended in the ratios in which it grows, mm. uh, which is something that um, we feel really passionate about in terms of unique flavour profiles and the like. Mm. Awesome. 
Well, look, um, I think uh, we'll probably have to wrap up because um, you've got a very busy day ahead of you out in the Melbourne trade. Uh, so <laughs> thank you for making some time to, to sit down with me. Um, do you have uh, any social media presence uh, accounts you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, yeah, you can find us on um, Instagram at Cambridge Road. Um, find us on Facebook also at Cambridge Road Vineyard. Fantastic. Guys, follow follow, uh, follow Lance and Cambridge Road and, and let him know that you uh, heard him on the podcast. So thanks again. Thanks, mate. It's good to be here. Cheers. Thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino. And, of course, thanks to Lance for his time on the show. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on social media, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Intrepid Wino. Uh, and you can also find the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. I have a YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, where I regularly post videos uh, tasting Australian wines called Let's Taste. Uh, so check out that and make sure you subscribe. Uh, and of course, as always, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the, the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, so you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or any number of different podcast hosting apps. All that information is available at intrepidwino.com and that's also where you'll find lots of different writings that I've done because I actually started as a blogger uh, and I blogged about my journey traveling around the world visiting wine regions. So come and visit me, get in touch. At, uh, I'm thevincast at gmail.com if you'd like to get in, in contact with me. But uh, until next time, bye. Bye.